dear church family, we carry on this evening in our Bible study series on the life of Joseph, the life of Joseph. We finished our last Bible study uh, on the life of Joseph, having seen Joseph being sold as a, a slave into Egypt, into the house of Potiphar, the captain of the guard, to Pharaoh. But very quickly, however, we see in chapter 38 of Genesis, the focus radically shifting, don't we? Radically changing from the altogether lovely Joseph, the obedient, willing, pure, beloved son of the Father. We see the shift, the contrast changing to the downright rebellious impure, carnal son, Judah, of which we know, we read earlier from Matthew 1, was from the family tree of which the Messiah would come from, amazingly. And so this, of course, speaks of the superabundant grace of Almighty God. Genesis 38, dear friends, is not for the faint in heart. There is much in today's passage of Scripture that quite frankly uh, repulses us, doesn't, does it not? It disgusts us. Um, indeed, because of its shocking content written here. And many preachers are put off altogether from preaching on this. You won't hear many sermons being preached on this particular chapter. But friends, that would be a grave mistake. Because it, it has much to tell us about man's capacity for sin and depravity and darkness. And yet, at the same time, how God's supernatural, superabundant grace can break through all this and overcome it for good. Why, you may ask, did the inspired penman Moses shift from the narrative from Joseph the altogether lovely Joseph to the altogether wretched Judah at this stage. Well, there are a number of reasons why. But the biggest reason why is because it is to show us the stark contrast between the spiritual, Christ-like Joseph who walked by faith in Christ, in God's covenanted promises, to him, which he learned from his dad and his granddad, and he truly believed in, is to show us the contrast between the Christ-like Joseph who walked by faith to that of the carnal Judah, who of course walked by sight. And this is evidently apparent, is it not, in the beginning of our first verse tonight in Genesis 38, verse 1. Judah went down from his brethren. First thing, straight away, separates himself from God's covenanted people. Separates himself from the brethren and turned into a certain Adullamite, Canaanite, whose name was Hira. The first thing he does, uh, of course, by separating himself from the, the covenant family, is to go downhill, as it were. A downward spiral into sin. I mean, his brethren weren't much better, were they? But still, Jacob was there, a true believer. And their granddad was there as well still, in Hebron, uh, Isaac. But you see, that guilty conscience, those things that he did, well, it gets worse. He wants to completely get away from the now he wants to completely get away from God's people. And the first thing he does is he separates himself from God's people. He's, you see, he wants to get himself out of sight, out of mind. I don't want to be around any of those reminders of my, my sins of the past. Those, those people who remind me of those things which I've done. Neither do I want to, that, my dad, that righteous man, or my granddad to remind me of of the Lord. So he separates himself from God's people. 
And the first thing he does is he makes friends with a pagan man, with uh, an Adulamite, whose name was Haram. And so let us take note, dear brethren, here, that, that this is what people can expect when they separate themselves from God's people. And I say this very lovingly and gently, because I've been there before for a, a little bit of time. When I was in a bachelor in the state, I didn't really want to be around God's people. I didn't want to be in the means of grace. Let this be a reminder, dear friends, when, when someone separates themselves from a Bible-believing church or from those influences, those godly influences, it's a downhill spiral. Things just get, keep on getting worse and worse and worse. First he separates himself, then he's, he's, he's teaming up with a, a worldly man, a pagan man, the Adulamite, making friends with an un unequally yoked friendship here. Downhill spiral, as it were. And if that were not bad enough, we see the marks of a profane and worldly man here in the verses that follow. In verses 2 through 5, J J Judah sees a certain Canaanite woman. We don't even know her name. And there's a reason why we don't know her name, because this is a, just a physical relationship. This is, just, this is not about the spiritual here for Joseph. She's called the daughter of Shua. Purely physical. Judah's not thinking spiritually now. He's switched off. And we see this downhill spiral. He takes her and he comes into her, as it were. Purely physical. Purely attracted to the worldly here. Worldly friend, worldly partner, as it were. He's, you can see the downhill spiral going here. And, and so he takes her, this physical relationship. And he has and once a son with her. And then he takes her again, there's another son, and another son. Purely physical relationship here. And the first child uh, he bears, named Ur, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And no doubt this child, Ur, um, was, was, was practicing like his dad, Judah was. Was, was practicing the Canaanitish culture, was going along, and was, do, was, was walking in the same sins of Judah, and probably doing a lot worse. And the Lord slew him, he was that wicked. The Lord slew him, he was, he was, he was going very far into evil. And God struck him dead. And of course he left behind Tamar uh, as a widow. In verses 6 through 10 we see that the depraved trend continued in the well-known sin of Anan. That was the second son Judah had, who was instructed by his father to marry his brother's wife. That was Tamar, the one Ur was dead. And Onan was asked by Judah to marry his brother's wife, to go in unto her, and to raise up seed for his dead brother's name. That was the custom in those days. And there were redemptive purposes behind that. Um, yes, they were in a, in a baptism of the state, but they still knew that the Saviour of the world would come from the line of Israel. They all were taught that. They all knew that. And so there were redemptive purposes behind that. There were property purposes behind that because she needed, she was a widow, and she also needed a, an inheritance as well. So there were many reasons behind that. Security reasons as well. Now we may see this custom as strange in our modern culture, however God saw it as incredibly important, so much so that he enacted it into law in Deuteronomy 25, 5-10, which you can no doubt read later. And just because the father was wicked, uh, it doesn't mean that the son will be wicked as well. There is hope that a godly seed can come out of wicked spring. There is hope. That, the, that, the, that a child doesn't have to be like their father. And that's, that's, that's such an great encouragement for us who are from broken homes, who perhaps who've had a wicked father or rebellious father. Um, that there is hope, as it were, that godly seed can come, and we know that from Scripture. Onan had a responsibility first towards God, did he not? To raise up godly seed for his brother. That was his duty, his responsibility. He had another responsibility towards his father, Judah, to honour his father's request. He had another responsibility to Tamar, 
to raise up seed with the potential of being godly seed for her welfare as well. Like I said, for property rights and for redemptive purposes. Tamar knew full well, more than any of that family, and talking about Judah's family, she was more righteous than they all were at this point, because she knew full well the redemptive purposes of, of Israel. Remember, she came from a pagan family. And so she knew full well, and she did not want to be left barren and fruitless. That meant that, that she had no possibility, no, no way, really, of being kept in the covenant line of Israel. She knew that. And so there were many reasons. If you see, friends, Bernan took the pleasure, did he not? But he did not take the responsibility. He went in unto his brother's wife. He took the pleasure, but he did not take the responsibility. And how telling is that of our culture and many of the professing world of Christians nowadays, taking the pleasure, but not the responsibility. He spilled his seed, knowing that the child would not be his. You see, what he was asked to do was something which was selfless. You've got to do this for your for Tamar. You've got to do this for redemptive purposes. You've got to do this for righteous purposes. This is a, 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 a commandment. But he was selfish. He knew that if he did that, the child from Tamar would not be his. And so the property would not be his. And the heritage would not be his. He was selfish. Now if he were unable to raise up seed for his brother, he should have done like Boaz did and find the next bit of kin. Like Boaz did with Ruth and go to the city gates and plead with them and he could have done that. But he took the pleasure, did, did he not? And not the responsibility. Onan had a, a duty also to preserve life foremost. Yet he deliberately stopped it at the spring of life, conception. And for this, the Lord slew him. As I've recently explained in the sermon I did on birth control and feminism, that's why the Lord slew him. Now in verse 11 we see the continued pattern. So remember, friends, at this stage, Judah has lost two sons. Ur, Ur, he's Ur, hasn't he? <laughs> He's got her, then Onan, he's married a worldling, his children have become wicked and worldly, they've been slain, separate himself from his brethren. It's not going well here for him, is it? It is rebellion from God. He's running from God. He knows full well he's on the run from God, doesn't he? He knows that it's God's judgment upon him. Oh, how stiff-necked. We can be, we can all be like a stiff-necked people, can't we? We can all be like a Judah, friends. And now we see, don't we, we see this pattern of, of Judah carrying on Judah's failings and his sins, not only as a, as a father, but also as a father-in-law as well to, to Judah. And let me just say this, pause for a moment to say, that it is possible to have rebellious children um, it is possible for parents to have rebellious children. Um, you can be the, the most God-fearing parent, but you can still end up with rebellious children. Scriptures teach us that. That is, grace is not hereditary. Um, Samuel was a godly man and a prophet, and he ended up with unbelievers that rebelled from him. And so I just want to say that for encouragement for any parents out there are grieved. They are doing the right thing. They love the Lord. They're living for the Lord. And yet, they've got rebels in their family. They've got Judas, as it were. Well, there's still hope. But this was not the case, dear friends, with Judah. Judah was a careless man, a worldly man. And he was a careless, not only as a father, but a father-in-law to Tamar. He says to Tamar in verse 11, Remain a widow at thy father's house. Think about that. Go back to your pagan father. Go back into the world. Go back. I'm not going to fulfill. Go back into the world. Go back, go back to the Canaanite culture, as it were. Till Sheila, my son, be grown 
for he said, Let's peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Judah knew, did, did, did he not, that God's judgment was upon him. He had separated himself from his brethren. He was running from God, wasn't he? He knew uh, that God's judgment was upon him. And so he's got his last son uh, left, but a lad. He had no intentions at all of giving his last son. No doubt he probably also was very mischievous to Tamar, unless the Lord would kill him as well. And he knew this was God's judgment upon him. And we see quite we see it is clear that Judah had no intention at all of giving his last son to Tamar in the course of time. No intention at all. But he promised her. So go to your go to your father's house, go to your pagan father's house in essence. And when Sheila, the last alive son, is grown up, I will give her, give him to, to you. And he will raise up seed for your name, for, for Ur's name. He will be part of the redemptive line. He lied to her. He deceived her. He was unfaithful as a, as a father and as a, a father-in-law. He had no intention to do this for Tamar. He was being unjust to his widowed daughter-in-law. And no doubt his conscience at this stage must have been very heavy and seared many times through. And if that were not enough, he sends her back to, again, like I said, that pagan father. What a thing for a son of Israel to do. To send someone back into a pagan culture. And no doubt this must have grieved Tamar. I mean, things were bad in that family. But, but they were not... The, the pagan culture, friends, that culture they lived in was wicked. And the pagan father must have had many gods. And so this, this must have been heart-wrenching for, for Tamar. And he was probably hoping never to see her again. I want to get her, get her out of my sight. I want, I want this responsibility over. His unjust treatment of Tamar would come back to haunt him, friends. It really would. And the words of Galatians 6, 8 really ring true in this respect. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall the Spirit reap life everlasting. Friends, if you reap to that which is temporary, calm and simple, don't expect, don't expect anything from God. Really. If you are rebelling from God, you're reaping to the flesh, not, not thinking upon God's words, not thinking upon your responsibility to your maker. Don't expect anything from God. We, are, we have no right to expect anything from God who sustains our breath, who gives us everything that we have. So it's a lesson for us, isn't it? And this is what we see in the unfolding verses here, verses 12 through 13. It says, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, again, we're not even given a name. She died. Judah's worldly wife died. And Judah was comforted. Well, how was he comforted? He went up unto his sheep shearers to Timnah. He and his friend Hira, the Adullamite. That name keeps on coming up again, doesn't it? You know, the, sh the sheep shearing season in uh, Canaan was renowned for its worldly reveling. reveling. It was renowned for its licentiousness. They went to party there, to booze and to do all sorts of wickedness. It was known that season. And that's why he was going up there. As it were, his worldly wife had died and that's what he, that's what he wanted to comfort himself with. No, no, he's not mourning here. He's not thinking and examining his thoughts, thinking about the big questions of life. Why are things going wrong? Why is this downhill spiral happening in my life? Oh, no, no. He's trying to distract himself with the temporary fleeting pleasures of this world, as it were. That's what he's doing. On the run from God, as it were. And it was told Tamar, wasn't it, saying, Behold, thy father, verse 13, the father-in-law goeth up to Timna to shear his sheep. She knew exactly why he was doing that. He was a dishonorable man. She knew that. She that was grown up by the stage, she should have, should have been given to him a long time before. And, he, and she knew that full well. She knew the reason why he was going up. His wife had died, and he's going up. 
as it were, to, to be comforted by carnal things, by the things of this world. Friends, we continue to see Judas down the spiral, into sin. God's judgment is clearly upon him. All is not well in Israel. His, his worldly marriage is abruptly brought to a swift end in the passing away of his worldly wife. Instead of reflecting upon where he's going wrong in all these tragic circumstances and storms of life and, and being on double guard now, double guard against such another big fall in his widowhood, he should have been really mourning and crying out to the Lord at this point. All these, these things have befallen him. Two of his children are, has died. His worldly wife has died. He's separated from himself from his brethren. He's, made, he's unequally yoked, both in marriage and with his, his friends. He's become a worldling. And he should have taken stock that something is not right here. And the same happens to him according to the true problem, doesn't it? The dog has turned to his own vomit again. And the sow that was washed the wallowing in the mire. This is so true, isn't it? Not the proverb. And again, you see Judah hanging out with his pagan friend. That Dunamite keeps on coming up all the time. He's feasting, no, no doubt, instead of mourning, thinking upon those big questions in life. And Tamar hears about it and takes the opportunity to exact that which Judah promised her concerning the giving of his son, Sheila. And it would seem, by Judah's response to Tamar, verse 26, that she had more light concerning the redemptive history of the Messiah than he did, than the whole of Judah's family. She had some inclination, even though her practice, how she went about it, was wicked, but her intentions were righteous. She wanted to do it the right way. But Judah was wicked, friends. She, it took her great courage to do this. But did Judah, the father-in-law, uh, did wickedly. We were not excusing the practice here. It was wicked. But her intentions were good. Friends, how often does God, by means of emulation, provoke the children of Israel to those who are not of the commonwealth of Israel? How often? Does that happen? In fact, in the, in, the, in the family tree of Christ, in Matthew 1, all the women mentioned there are strangers to the commonwealth of Israel, aren't they? Come from these dubious backgrounds. And it just magnifies the superabounding grace of God, that God so looks, God so can, can so break through depravity, wickedness, and so change a man, a woman's heart for the good. Now friends, in verses 14 through 23, we see how Tamar wickedly prostituted herself to Judah. She took off her willow garments, covered her, herself with a veil, as was the custom of harlots to do uh, in that, with a shame, as it were. And she then sat in an open place, again, as, as it was the custom of harlots to do. Uh, she knew you full well. Uh, that open place was the place where Judah would have come forth. Maybe she had some hope that he would be bringing Sheila, his, his son, with him as well. We don't know that. I'm speculating. But maybe that was her hope. But he didn't. But he's full now of partying, full of that culture, as it were, that time of year, full of booze or whatever it is. He's been enjoying himself, the things of this world, fleeting pleasures. And Judah, having embraced the Canaanite culture, becomes easy prey for the devil, doesn't he? Easy prey indeed. Judah has forsaken his brethren for the world and separated himself. He's made friends with worldlings. His children have become worldly. He marries a worldling. He is a worldling, isn't he? And Judah now, with eyes full of adultery, propositions his daughter-in-law, thinking her to be a harlot. Just can't make this up, can you? <laughs> it's, a, it's just astounding. 
Remember, at this point, Tamar is completely exacerbated. She's completely broken and exacerbated. She's, she's been lied to. She's been uh, abandoned by a father-in-law to a pagan father. She's been dealt with unfaithfully. There's no future for her. There's no heritage in Israel for her. There's no hope for her at all. There's nothing to look forward to. And Tamar knowing her life is over. It's over for her. She just risks it all. Risks her life. And actually there's a, a great amount of faith. Beginning of faith here in, in Tamar. Although, like I said, her practice is wrong. But she wanted to be part of the heritage of God's redemptive line. She knew about that. And so in the hope that her sinful practice will be, will in the end be pardoned. Because her intentions were righteous, whereas Judah's were not. And Tamar, Tamar makes Judah to make a solemn promise, doesn't, doesn't she? A pledge. And Judah offers a, a kid, a lamb. And if I can go into unto you, as it were, you see, still thinking that way. Still, that's learned. And if I can go unto you, as it were, well, I'll, I'll come back and bring you a lamb. And treating like an object. And Tamar suggests, cause Tamar knows that Judah is an, 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 uh, uh, an, an honourable man, he's not an honourable man, a dishonourable man, he, she knows that, no way is she going to take that pledge, is she? And notice that Judah does not even question her when she says, well no, I want you to leave the bracelet and the, the, the signet around your neck and the bracelets around your, 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 your arm and your staff, leave that. Leave that as a pledge, and then when you bring the lamb, I'll, I'll, in essence, I'll give you back these jewels. She knew, and, and notice, there's no argument with Judah. He, he knows he's a dishonorable man. It, and just an honorable man would have said, he shouldn't have been there in the first place. But an honorable man would know that he's a dishonorable man. And so the pledge, the pledge was made. Tamar suggests to, for, for for him to leave his jewels, that star, those, that, those bracelets, and that signet. Much can be said about this, but time doesn't allow me to speak of it too much. That was like your identity in those days. It was like being without a passport, being without, uh, you know, certain, like an NI number in, in the UK. If you didn't have those things, really, it was really important. The, the, the signet that had a little scroll inside it, the bracelets, these jewels were very precious and important. And the folly he does, just to, for a fleeting pleasure, just hands them over, as it were. You can just see the, the depravity of this man, the thinking of this man. And friends, how fleshly lusts just rob men of that which is precious, isn't it, to the soul? And whilst Judah is giving his heart to every vile lust and affection this world has to offer, Almost seemingly at the same time, Joseph is fleeing lust every day, isn't he? In Potiphar's house. Every day he's being tempted, isn't he? Tempted by that adulteress. Remember that? Every day it says in scriptures. Every day that adulteress in Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife was tempting him, luring him in. And what does he do? How can I commit this great sin in the sight of God? And he flees from lust, doesn't he? He's walking by faith. He believes in Christ. He's living for the Lord, depending upon the Lord. Walking by faith. And the other is walking by sight. Just giving in to his sins, carnally giving in to every sin, as it were. What a contrast presented here. One who is walking by faith in God's promises, loving the Lord, depending upon the Lord. He's not a perfect man. He has sin to the contrast to one who is walking by sight. Unequally yoked, as it were. Worldly wife, worldly friends, worldly things. What a contrast, friends. 
What a solemn message to our young people here today and those who will come to listen to these things. To be equally yoked to those who are truly the Lord's. Don't go for the worldly friends. A solemn message here. Now Tamar conceived a child by Judah and returned once again home and put on her widow garments and tried to conceal her pregnancy for three months. Whilst Tamar did that, whilst, whilst Tamar did that, Judah cowardly sent his pagan friend, remember the Adullamite, Hera, to receive his pledge from the woman. What a coward he is as well. He tries to cover up his sin. He doesn't want it to become public information. He doesn't want his, his brethren, especially his father, to, to find out of his foolishness, giving up these jewels, of his uncleanness. Uh, and so he, he sends, of course, his mate. He sends the Adullamites to do his dirty work for him, as it were, uh, to try to cover up his sin. And uh, Tamar could not be found, uh, could she? And so Judah decided to let the matter go. You know, remember these things were precious. This was not like losing, you know, a pack of sweets or <laughs> pasty. You know, this was losing a lot here. But you, you see, grudgingly, he, he kind of lets it go. Else people would hear of it. And it would become public. And it would be publicly proclaimed. It's folly, folly in Israel. The uncleanliness, the foolishness of this man. And take note, friends, rebel sinners often get those who are like-minded in their worldliness to aid and abet in their sins. Never forget that. Worldly people uh, are always enticing those who are seekers or who are the Lord's to aid and abet in their worldliness, in their sins. And, and if we aid and abet in those who are given to worldliness, we are partakers of their sins. And this is what Judah does to the Sodomite. And the Sodomite doesn't have any problem covering up for Judah. No problem at all. He's worldly. He's willing. In verses 24 through 26, we see that after three months, Tamar is found to be with child of Judah. And Judah is informed that Tamar has played the harlot. And what was Judah's reaction to this? Shocking announcement. Did he quietly go to her private and say, Why? Why did you do it? Did he plead with her? Did he try out of love to, to show mercy upon her? Did he, did he quietly question her and say, I could have helped you? He doesn't, does he? He says, Bring her forth and burn her, as it were. Bring her forth and burn her. He was eager to get rid of her. What a hypocrite. He was guilty of the same things and worse. Remember the folly of the, Shish the Shishimites previously, of, 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 their, of their sister. And yet, here he, here he is, committing such wicked acts. He is such a hypocrite. And oh, that men would, oh, that we, Dear friends, would be more harsh on our sins. Oh, that we would, as it were, pluck out the beam of our own eyes. Oh, that we would treat our own sins uh, as, as terrible. We see here, Judah did not bother to speak to her, to plead with her, examine with her. Burn her! Burn her! Get rid of her! She's a thorn in my side. In a, in a way, it reminded her him of his responsibility. She was actually, not in her practice, but in her intentions, was righteous. She wanted the right things. And he knew it. He wanted her out of the way, didn't he? All the depravity of the heart of man. And oh, how unlike Joseph he was. And oh, how unlike the greater Joseph, Christ, he was like. Who, Joseph, who showed mercy to his brethren, Although they treated him wickedly and threw him in a pit. Here's Judah, burn her! 
as it were. Get rid of them. No counsel at all. No questioning. No trial. No jury. Just get rid of them. Oh, the depravity here is shocking. Dear friends, notice Judah went out from his brethren full. He went out full, didn't he? And now he's coming again empty-handed, isn't he? He went out full. He separated himself from his brethren, friends, and now he has become barren. Worldly wife, worldly children, lost them all. Sheila's probably uh, a mischievous child as well. Tamar's almost had it. It's not looking good, is it? For God's covenant and family, friends. Barren, fruitless, as it were. Friends, obedience is fruitfulness. Disobedience is barrenness. Obedience is beautiful. Disobedience is ugliness, isn't it? Well, we all know what happened next. Tamar said, didn't, didn't she, when she was being brought forth, as it were, when she was being brought forth by the man whose knees are, I am with child. She had the bracelets and the bracelet, she had the signet, she had the star. By these, by these, my father-in-law, by these, these jewels, as it were. Ironically, Judah said the same to Israel, to Jacob. Like, is this my son's coat, Dad? Remember that? That was Judah that did. And and reaping what he sowed. Tamar comes. Do you know whose these are? Dad? Uh, Father-in-law? The, these bracelets, the signets, this identity? Do you know who these are? She's, he's, she, he's reaping what he's sowed. Isn't he? These look familiar? Father-in-law? Like Nathan to David, David, thou art the man. Thou art the man, as it were. You're the person. And Judah can no longer cover up his sins anymore, friends. God has brought to light that which was conceived in darkness. And let this be a lesson to us, dear brethren, that as much as we try to cover up our sin, as much as we try to cover up those things in our life, God will proclaim them on the housetops. He will. Those, dear friends, who try to cover up their sins, they will be proclaimed upon the housetops one day. That which is done in darkness will be revealed in light, and God will make it so. He'll, be, he'll, he'll make naked the, the things of the hearts. In verse 26, we finally start to see the beginnings of regret and repentance. Yeah. Right, right towards the end, Judah acknowledged he was the man, and that Tamar was more righteous than him. She, she took great courage for her, Although, like I said, this, this practice is never to be endorsed. It was wicked. And he was unfaithful. And we start to see here a turning in his life. The pattern of his lust and his sin and his worldliness and his downhill spiral, as it were. In verse 26, it all starts to turn around, this pattern. And he knew her again no more. I cannot put an emphasis upon the meaning of those words, the significance of those words. And he knew her again no more. Not like, remember, the first time round with his worldly wife, again and again and again, the sons, the pattern of sin. Now, he knew. He knew that things were not going right in his life because God's judgment was upon him. He was running from God. He wasn't obeying God's word. He wasn't putting in place those things which God had told him to. He was running. <clears throat> and he knew a Tamar game no more. He forsook sin, didn't, didn't he? The pattern here had been broken. We see the, the first beginnings here of repentance and regret. True conviction, friends, of sin in any, in any rebel sinner's heart brings life and fruitlessness. Fruitless, fruitfulness to that which is barren. The devil has done his utmost to make the covenant line barren. 
And we see that theme, don't we? Right throughout scripture. Abraham, Sarah, Rebecca. We see how the devil is trying to make God's covenant people barren. He's trying to stop the redemptive line, the promises of God. And he's tempting God's people, he's tempting people to, to follow evil. But God, God in his sovereign grace, God in his love and mercy, God so breaks through, doesn't he? So brings people low, so humbles them. Remember, he humbled Joseph. Judah is being humbled. Reuben's been humbled. Judah's being humbled. It's the, the family is, is being humbled. Joseph is leaving them. And then the other family, all the children are all starting to be humble. The Lord is knocking them down one by one, like a domino effect. They're all being humble, as it were. They're all being brought low. God, through providence, is speaking to them, convicting them. When God does this in our lives, are we listening? Are we hearing Him? Are we, as they close examinations? With the Lord in our hearts, are we taking these things to heart? Yeah, no big problem. Just common things of life. Is that our attitude? Get up again, attitude? Or do we sit and reflect? Read the Word of God. Pray, cry to the Lord. Are we serious about the Word of God? No, no problem. These things are. And, and it was true. Judah was deeply humbled. And we start to see the beginnings here. And God so broke through and overruled. Judah had corrupted himself and others. He had committed every, every evil conceivable, it would seem. He had become absolutely filthy and empty and void and barren. His wife, worldly wife, died. His first child died. The second wife died. Oh, Tamar was not looking good, neither was it for Sheila, Sheila, his, his son. Barrenness marked his, his journey now. His situation was a desperate one, a helpless one, a barren one. But the moment that God so intervened in his life, the moment that God so brought him to a situation in his life where he could not help and say, something's wrong here. God's judgment is upon me here. I'm not listening to the word of God. I'm not taking it seriously here. When will I take it seriously? When will I frame my life around what God's calling me to do? And seek Him. And that was, that's what was happening. And God said, break through. And overcame that. But the moment that God intervened, friends, he knew it. And he became fruitful again with the birth of two sons from Tamar, as we read in Matthew's covenant line. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. And they were named in Matthew's covenant line. And this speaks of the superabundance superabounding sovereign grace of God. Oh, let us magnify the sinner's friend, dear friends. Him who showed his friend, who showed such sovereign grace and mercy and love to rebel sinners. Oh, that we may magnify the sinner's friend. That there is one who is so willing to pardon us, such wretched sinners. If we would just question our hearts and look within there is one who is willing to pardon us all these things. And so break through and so give us strength and power from above to do so. The remaining verses, verses 27 through to the end, speak of the birth of the twins, Phares and Zara, who, could, who would come to form the most considerable and illustrious tribe in the whole of Israel, Judah. <laughs> Amazing. From barrenness to the most illustrious tribe. In Israel, Judah, the family from which the Saviour would come from, this is surely but down to the sovereign grace and majesty of the Lord. Oh, let us magnify the sinner's friend, the Lord Jesus, 
who can so grow as a flourishing vine out of the dry ground. Our hearts by nature are like Judas, they're barren, they're wretched, they're vile. But the Lord can so change that, can't he, by his grace. He can, can bring life out of the barren ground, as it were. He can make us into a fruitful bow, like he did with God's people. Now brethren, one could give a really a, a, an hour, two hour discourse on these two twins and upon this last passage here. But I just don't have the time to do that. Tamar, friends, was let down by all the men in her life. But God came through for her in the end. God broke through for her in the end. God overcame all the odds for her, like he did with Ruth and all of God's true people. And during Tamar's labour, Zara puts out his hand first, so you can imagine the scene. There's Zara sticking out his hand. <laughs> sticking out his hand, the midwife sees the hand. Ah, great, you're the oldest. And of course we know the significance of an older child in Israel. You're the oldest. Okay, I'll get the scarlet, tie it to the, to the, to the hand. He's going he's gonna to come out first, as it were, the midwife ties a scarlet thread upon his hand to mark he's the eldest. However, Pharaoh's miraculously breaks through. <laughs> it's a bit strange, isn't it? It's miraculous because Zara was first. He put his hand out. But how did how did Pharaoh's do come out first? It's a miracle here. God's trying to say something to us here, friends. How did this happen? Through Pharaoh's, dear friends, would come Christ. Christ, the son of David. It was through the, the line of Pharaoh's. Pharaoh's name means the one who breaks through. That's, his, that's what his name means. Christ, by his sovereign grace, is the only one who breaks through and overcomes all our failures and all our sin. Christ breaks through the tomb. He breaks through sin and death. He overcomes sin and death. He breaks through all of our worst enemies. Sin, death, the world, the tomb, the devil. He is the one that breaks through miraculously, like we see here with this birth. It is only through Christ we are more than conquerors. It is only through Him that we can break down these things in our lives. And no doubt the inspired penman Moses is making us to taste the sour first year in, in Genesis 38. He wants us to, 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 to understand the depravity of man, the sour, before we can taste the sweet of God's grace. And isn't that true of conversion? That we have to first taste the bitterness, the sourness of our sin and our neglect of God, and how we've treated our maker, and how we've rebelled from our maker, how we are the Jews, we are the man. We have to sometimes get to that point in our life where God shows us, Thou art the man. You're the one who rebelled against me. And the inspired penman is so convicting us here. He's so convicting us of the sour in order to bring about the sweet. In order that we so irresistibly embrace the sweet in God's forgiveness. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. Let us humble, humble ourselves, dear friends, under the mighty hand of Almighty God. God can make the vilest sinner clean like he did with Judah. Judah, who, by the way, went on to lay his life down later on for Benjamin. Didn't he? So the beginnings of repentance here, the beginnings of changed life here, we see Changing. Now he's becoming selfless. Now he wants to stay and leave his life because he doesn't want Benjamin to be in trouble. We'll learn of that later on. Changed man here, friends. Or the beginnings of a changed man here. Oh, friends, let us magnify the sinner's friend. The, sin, the, sin, the, the, the friend of sinners, the Lord Jesus. Well, friends, I hope, um, I hope I've just given us a bit of a, a taste well, there's, there's much more to this chapter than what I've put, but I just hope that, that we've taken uh, these 
uh, these truths on board from the Word, and we've applied it to our lives, and that we will apply it to our lives. Amen.